News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. A little bit later, we're going to be talking, of course, about the impact of COVID-19 here in BC and right across the country. I think Manitoba is about to get more measures announced this morning from Premier Brian Pallister there. So more to come on that. Right now, though, we're going to talk about money being smuggled into Canada, potentially millions of dollars of Iranian money. It's being alleged by Canada's National Spy Agency that that is what's going on. This is according to a classified intelligence report that's been obtained by Global News. Global News investigative journalist Stuart Bell is joining us now to dig deeper into what we are learning from those documents. And Stuart, thanks for being back with us. Good morning. So tell me about these documents. What do they tell us? Well, this is a report that was produced by CSIS uh, last year as it was doing uh, an investigation of a fellow in Toronto who has uh, owned several uh, currency trading businesses in Toronto. And what they're alleging is that um, his business was used by the government of Iran to uh, circumvent international sanctions and uh, route money into Canada. Now, um, you know, as most people know, Iran has been subject to economic sanctions for some time now, uh, largely because of its nuclear program and concerns about that. Um, and so there's a, quite a sanctions regime that's in place, including in Canada. And uh, the allegations in the CSIS report are basically that the Iranian regime has routed money uh, through the United Arab Emirates and then into Canada uh, using this very small money trading company um, that's uh, owned by an Iranian citizen who lives in Toronto. All right. So then what is being done about this? Well, I, I think uh, we're, we're exploring the larger issue here because I think uh, this seems to be part of a broader concern um, in terms of the flows of money and money laundering uh, that we've seen in Canada for some time. Um, but in terms of uh, the skirting of sanctions, um, it's something that clearly the uh, Canadian intelligence is looking at uh, because they, you know, they were able to produce a report on this. And uh, in terms of this individual person, um, he's he, at the moment he has been trying to get citizenship in Canada, but it's been uh, basically suspended because of these concerns about his alleged working with the government of Iran. So he's trying to get citizenship. That So that would suggest then that this person has kind of been active and in this country for quite some time. Yeah, he arrived here uh, in 2008 as an investor immigrant and uh, purchased several properties. He had some luxury cars. He currently lives in, a, in quite a large mansion uh, in Vaughan, Ontario. Um, and he's, he's operated in a number of businesses here in Canada, um, largely, it appears, uh, in the money trading and currency business. And uh, so this is, you know, it's, it, it's uh, more generally speaking, a method that uh, can be used to illicitly move money be- between countries. And the allegation here, of course, is that, um, you know, the government of Iran has used this business to, to move money for its own purposes into Canada in a way that avoids the sanctions that are currently in place. Right. So does that, I mean, given that he came here in the investor program too, are there no checks and balances in that program, Stuart, to see like where that money actually comes from? 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think uh, the investor program, uh, people just have to put up uh, a certain amount of money or show that they have a certain amount of money that they are going to invest in Canada. Um, I'm not sure there's much really done to investigate the origins or the sources of that money. It's fascinating. All right, Stuart, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Stuart Bell is a Global News investigative journalist. His latest piece, which you can read online at globalnews.ca, kind of dives into some classified intelligence reports that have been obtained by Global News, uh, looking into what Canada's National Spy Agency is alleging, that millions of dollars of Iranian money is potentially being smuggled into the country. This is Mornings with Simi. We're going to talk now about a local Vancouver company that is about to launch a clinical trial that would use psilocybin in psychotherapy for substance use disorders. Well, what does all of that mean? Well, let's find out. Peyton Nykvest is the founder and CEO of Numinous and joins us now. Peyton, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Can you explain the idea behind this? Yeah, so we recently announced uh, a compassionate access trial for the psychotherapy psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy for substance use disorders using psilocybin, which is a collaboration with uh, Syrian Corporation. And the, the reason for launching this trial is to be able to implement, test, and refine protocols for participants with a range of different substance use disorders, including uh, tobacco, stimulant, alcohol, and opiate disorders. So why is this such a new method of potentially treating substance use disorders? How is this different? Yeah, so psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is actually something that's been researched for quite some time. And um, obviously with, with the war on drugs in the 1970s, a lot of that research was was halted. Um, but a, a really large renewed interest in um, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy has brought through a lot of research in this space, and you're seeing a huge amount of momentum to support. Mainly, um, you know, what the research is showing has been extremely compelling, um, and so it's led to a lot of uh, renewed interest and a lot of uh, financial interest in this space as well. So how does this trial work then? Do people volunteer? Have you recruited people? Yeah, so we've we're just in the process of starting to recruit people now. Um, the the protocol and everything else has been written already. So um, it, early in the new year, we'll we'll be about implementing this protocol and getting it launched. What does this tell us, Peyton, about how we are starting to view substance use disorders uh, versus, say, how we looked at them even ten years ago? Yeah, I, I think you know, I think not only substance use disorders, but how we treat mental health. Um, you know, our, our chief medical officer, Dr. Evan Wood, regularly talks about um, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, being able to to look at these uh, substances and this therapy as, as curative uh, and with curative intent. We usually, when we look at mental health, we, we think this is something that we need to treat for the rest of our lives and maybe put on SSRIs or something like that, whereas... Um, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy has the potential to to cure some of these mental health issues. Okay, so that's very different then, right? So this is, you're not talking about, as you said, somebody managing this for the rest of their lives or having to fight those urges or the potential for relapse. Is it really that that positive? 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at, uh, so MAPS, which is an organization um, based in the U.S., which also has a, an arm, MAPS Canada, up, up in Canada, um, recently posted the results from their FDA Phase 3 clinical trials with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. And they, uh, don't quote me exactly, but it was about 68% success rate with treating treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and after 12 months, it was still gone. Right. Um, hmm. and, and yeah, so it's really, you know, shifting the way we look at this and, and, um, and actually curing some of these ailments. So how difficult was it, though, to get to this point? For numinous? Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you know, it's, it, there was a lot of work done by, you know, Numinous over the last couple of years, we founded Numinous almost three years ago now. Um, and the thing that I will say is, is you've seen a huge amount of interest from, or a huge amount of support from Health Canada, you know, recently granting uh, a number of uh, end-of-life anxiety patients Section 56 licenses to be able to use psilocybin. And most recently, actually, the first person um, got to be able to use psilocybin with a Section 56 license for depression treatment. So you're seeing a lot of support from regulators, which is great. And um, and I think, you know, that ball is, is really just starting to roll. So you're saying that there is an appetite on the part of Health Canada to perhaps try something different, do things differently? Uh, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, again, with the research coming out, a lot of these credible institutions, um, there's the evidence to be able to really back it up. So, yeah, how long will this uh, study take? How long will you be doing this? Yeah, so we're just putting together the timetable now. So it's it's hard for me to speculate exactly on how long, but... Um, but again, with, with protocol already written and developed, um, our center in Vancouver is, is just in the final stages of a renovation to be able to house this trial. So early in the new year, we'll be getting launched. Okay, so where can people find more information? Yeah, you can go to our website at numinous.ca or follow us on, on any of our social channels. All right, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Peyton Neckvest, who's the founder and CEO of a company called Numinous. Uh, they are going to be launching a clinical trial. They've been given permission from Health Canada to use psilocybin in psychotherapy to see if it works for substance use disorders. That is a pretty new way of thinking, as Peyton was pointing out there, that Health Canada is willing to allow companies to give this a shot now. Uh, and totally different way of looking at substance use disorders as well. So we'll keep you posted on how that goes for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, lots of talk about uh, Christmas lights over the last 24 hours, thanks to the District of North Vancouver. For more on that, we're going to chat now with Nikki Reitmeyer. Nikki, good morning. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, yesterday I had a day off, but I was following the news and I kept seeing this story right. come up over and over and over again. It seemed like it was the only thing people were talking about yesterday, so it was quite highly anticipated to find out what city council in the District of North Vancouver would vote on last night if they would vote to mandate that people must turn their lights off by 11 p.m. each evening. It was quite the Grinchy bylaw, as people were saying. And to refresh your memory on this story, Sarah McDonald from Global News, she spoke to a lot of people who were opposed to the idea. They're an unmistakable sign of the holiday season, and most people really like them. I like Christmas lights. 
I don't have a problem with it. It is such a happy feeling. It's so Christmassy, and it really like brightens up your mood. But in the district of North Vancouver, Christmas lights aren't loved by everyone. At least not according to a handful of complaints received over the past few years, calling elaborate and loud displays a nuisance. We've only had three complaints over the past five years about Christmas lights. And so I don't really think this is a item where council needs to spend our time. That's exactly what happened on Monday, albeit very briefly, with council set to mull what critics called a Grinchy bylaw, which would have made it illegal to have lights lit past 11 o'clock at night and before 7 in the morning. Yeah, it'd be kind of dark, you know, after 11, if you don't get that spirit of Christmas. The fine for those flagged to bylaw officers? A hundred bucks. There's a lot of issues they should be dealing with. Why deal with uh, personal issues such as that? I think it's ridiculous. I think that's something people can do on their own. They don't have to be legislated to do things like Christmas lights. Come on. No, they don't need to be legislated to do things like Christmas lights. And you know, Nikki, my reaction when I heard this story was, well, this ain't going anywhere. Like this, this is going to be shot down pretty fast given the mood of people right now. And I'm, I'm surprised that somebody didn't see this coming. Well, especially when you only had, what, three people in five years complain about this right? and somehow they thought that that this is a, is a topic that should be put before council. I mean, it's so ridiculous. And as you heard so many different people say in that clip who were, uh, you know, asked about what they thought about this, this isn't something council should be dealing with. If you have a problem with your neighbor, you know, go knock on their door and talk to them about it. We don't need to make bylaws because people won't talk to their neighbors about their problems. And, you know, in the end, we can... We can confirm that the District of North Vancouver did, in fact, remove the amendment from their agenda last night. So there you go. They decided it wasn't worth their time after all. Well, and it wasn't, but it shouldn't have been to begin with. Like whoever put that on the agenda should have been able to see, oh, geez, you know what? I think people are, this is not going to go over very well in the current climate and environment. We should probably just put a hold on this one. So I, I guess what? They don't look at the actual stuff before they put it on the agenda? Yeah, but you know, that's a great point. I mean, 2020 has been a miserable year for right. a lot of people. And how many times have you had conversations with people thus far this year who are saying, you know, I'm putting up my Christmas decorations a little earlier because it's going to bring me a bit of joy. Or, you know, I put the tree up already because it makes me feel happy to look at the tree. And geez, I could sure use some happiness this year. Oh, and I, then you have something like a, you know, a bylaw saying that people right. need to turn their Christmas lights off. I mean, give me a break. I think this almost makes more people want to put up Christmas lights, right? We were also talking about that BC Hydro survey. I know we're going to talk about it later too, but I think I've seen some really great displays already, and it's not even December. I put up my Christmas tree just yesterday, actually. Ah. So it was quite nice because, I, you know, I live in an apartment, so I, I don't have Christmas lights out on the balcony or anything. But through my window, I saw as I was going for a walk last night that you could see the lights on. And I thought, oh, it's, it's looking so festive, so warm and cozy inside. And, you know, in reaction to this, too, North Vancouver Mayor Linda Buchanan, she actually tweeted, and this is a quote, she said, Let's make this Christmas a little brighter for all of us. Get those lights on and wish your neighbors a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, or Season's Greetings. Hashtag, we all need a little cheer. Hashtag, Christmas lights on. Hashtag, North Vancouver. (laughs) (laughs) Well, BC Hydro will be happy about that. There's a lot of people think Christmas lights, right? (laughs) Or you could put up, of course, the energy-saving Christmas lights, the LED lights. But let me ask you a very important Christmas light question. Okay, Nikki? Uh This applies to your tree. It applies to outdoor lights. And this is, I think this... There's there's two camps of people when it comes to this. Are you a fan of the single color lights 
or multicolored mm-hmm. lights. <laughs> Which camp I, do you fall into? I feel very strongly about this. City. Oh, I love the look on, on other people's homes of the multicolored lights that nice. those very traditional. Cause when, when we were kids growing up, I remember we had uh, those big glass bulbs yes. and you know, the paint would always be chipping off them, but they looked so, so great. Like so Christmassy as an adult, I am white lights all what? the way. I only have white lights on my Christmas when tree. When did you lose uh, your joy? Then, oh. when, did you- <laughs> <laughs> when I grew up, Simi, and the weight of the world slowly crushed down on me, I turned into a white Christmas light person. But you're right. There's something extremely joyous about the multicolored lights. And I, I really love seeing them on other people's homes. But I just love that classy, all white or the oh, icicle classy. lights. Look Ooh. at you throwing Ooh. it down. What are you saying about those of us who have multicolored lights? So my tree has both. I have like a switch that will make it either all white lights or, and I bought that for a very specific reason is because my two children are on opposite sides of this camp, right? So when they were teenagers and then when they were both living at home, I could tell who was at home at the current time, depending on what color the lights were on the Christmas tree. If they were all, <laughs> if they were all white, I knew one particular child was home because, you know, she would have come in and put it on all white and vice versa. That's a very festive way. Instead of leaving yes. a note or something, hey, mom, I'm <laughs> home. You just, just switch the Christmas lights to whichever one you prefer, and then I'll know that you're, in fact, home. So you have a, you have a male child. You have a female child. Who preferred the white lights and who preferred the, my, the colorful lights? My daughter prefers the white lights. My mm-hmm. son prefers very strongly the multicolored lights. I'm a multicolored light person. I'm sorry. Oh. I think the more the merrier. Get all the colors in there. It just looks so festive. It does. It truly does. And when it comes to the Christmas decorations that you put on your tree, do you have a total mishmash of decorations that yes. you've collected over the years? Yes. Or are you the type of person, okay, so you're not the type of person who just has, you know, all no. red baubles? I pride myself on having a very eclectic amount of ornaments. I collect them when I travel. Uh, over mm. the years, I've collected them. I've got some from when I was a kid on there. My mother was, she wanted everything on the tree to be red and gold, and that was it. So she was very, like, she loved those. That's how it had to look, right? And I'm very much a, no, I'll put it all on there. It all looks good, kind of person. You know, I got to confess, I in the past have had a tree that was white lights and then all red and gold. So I see where your mother's. (laughs) It just looks, it looks so nice. Now, as years have gone on, what I've started to do is when I travel somewhere, I don't collect a lot of knickknacks. I don't like to have, you know collect a lot of things in general. But the one thing that I do make sure that I grab when I'm traveling is a bauble that represents yes. somewhere that I've been. So Me then too. now, you know, yesterday when I was putting up the tree, yeah, it's nice to look at this. Oh, look at this. I got I this in that. Berlin. Or, oh, here's the one I got in Paris last year. And it's nice to be able to, you know, have those memories yes. Stir back up as you're putting decorations on the tree. And in Nikki's case, all white lights because she mm. prefers that. Which- because I'm classy, Simmy. Oh. <laughs> well, the gauntlet is thrown down. Thank you for that, Nikki. You can, you can weigh in with your thoughts. Are you a multicolored light person or an all one color light person? Which one of us sides do you take? This is Mornings with Simmy. We've never had so much information available to us about the right way to eat, the right things we should be eating, and the things that we should be avoiding. We've heard over and over and over again, listen, stay away from food that is ultra-processed, meaning it's undergone a whole bunch of different things to become something else, right? They say eat as much whole food as you possibly can that's been altered as little as possible. Well, it turns out we're not necessarily great, though, at heeding all of that advice. 
Uh, a new study, a new report out from Statistics Canada, shows that almost half the calories that the average Canadian is consuming comes from ultra-processed foods. So I spoke with their senior researcher, Didier Garigue, to find out more about what that means. Well, thank you very much for joining us to talk about this today. First off, tell us what you took a look at in this report. How much unprocessed food are we eating? So we look at ultra-processed food, which is essentially the food and drinks products that are like industrial formulations of mostly cheap sources of dietary energy and nutrients, along with additive. And we saw that in 2000. And 15, at that time we conducted the survey, uh, 46% of the energy intake in the population was from this kind of food. Oof, okay, and what are the dangers of that? So, in general, the, so ultra processed foods, we're talking about like soft drinks, um, you know, candies, cakes, like these kind of things, mm-hmm. uh, commercial bread also. And uh, so, these are products that are rich in energy, free sugars, saturated fat, and sodium, and at the same time are low in fiber, proteins, and micronutrients. So there's more and more mounting evidence that high intake of these kind of foods are associated with elevated risk of several chronic conditions, such as cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and even premature death. I guess over the years, it's not like we haven't heard the warnings about these types of foods either in the last 10 years, and yet it doesn't seem to be slowing us down, does it? Uh, there's been a little bit of a decline. So the last time we had information was back in 2004, like the same kind of information. Mm-hmm. And between 2004 and 2015, the percentage of energy coming from ultra-processed food went from 48% to 46% for the entire population. But if you're just looking at kids and teenagers, for example, especially teenagers, it went down a bit more than that. So like from even 57% to like 50, 51%. Right. So that's a little bit of progress, but that's a long time over a period of 10, 15 years. Yeah, it's uh, just like in general, I would say that in nutrition or like food habits, like it takes a long time to change them so that we get to see something at the overall population level. Does this also tell us then, Didier, just how reliant we are as a population on these types of foods? It's a good question. Like a lot of these food are essentially e- like cheap, one first thing, and also like easy to, to get to. So like we're talking about like fast food, we're talking about uh, frozen dinners, for example. So they don't need any preparation. So part of it could be that it's just so easy to, to get to. Right. Was there a, an age group in the population that actually ate more foods? In 2015? So the teenager, yeah, the, te- the teenagers for sure are the biggest consumers. So like 51 to 53% of their energy intake is coming from uh, ultra-processed food. And then like the little kids also are part of this. And then it goes down with age, although it kind of stabilizes uh, with the older population. If you compare to 2004, uh, so I said before that everything is kind of going down a little bit, mm-hmm. except for the older people. So people age 55 plus, actually, we saw that their energy intake from ultra-processed food is slightly going up in the 10 years. Did that surprise you? Uh, more or less, like in the sense that if we look like a bit more deeper and see like what kind of what food groupings within the ultra-processed food category are going up or down, we see that a lot of the decline comes from lower consumption in soft drinks and food drinks, which are right. mostly consumed by kids and teenagers. Um, 
and not so much by the older population. And for the older population, what we see is like bread, like commercial bread, which is increasing for everybody, but especially for the older population, is kind of what is pushing their their increase there. That's so fascinating. So we're we're kind of getting the message on soft drinks, right, and, and those kinds of drinks, but not so much on other types of food. Yeah, beverage intake for sure has been probably the one category where there's more changes in the last 10 years. So like less soft drink, less fruit drinks, uh, a bit more water in general. Uh, so that's kind of a, a, an improvement. But yeah, for the other type of food, like we're talking the older population, fast food, frozen, frozen dishes, commercial bread, uh, even like sweetened milk and soy beverages, these are the kind of things that are part of the ultra processed food categories that have been increasing for them and so, for a lot of the other age group too. Right. So where do you go from here? What next are you going to look at? So in this first look, we really kind of look more at the comparison between 2004 and 2015 and mostly look at the differences by age and sex a little bit, although there was not that much difference between um, male and female. Going forward, we're going to look a bit more about like what's the relationship with ultra processed and other socioeconomic characteristics such as income, education, immigration status, for example. Right. We should be clear here too, shouldn't we, that we're not just talking about processed food because there's a difference between processed food and ultra processed food. Yes. So ultra processed food is really the food that is like produced in industrial settings and they're adding additive to it like by opposition. So we use the NOVA classification to kind of categorize these food into four different categories like the ultra processed food is the one that we were really interested there but there's three other categories one which is essentially unprocessed food so your basic fruit and vegetable meat milk for example Mm -hmm. the second one is culinary ingredients so sugar oil butter salt the third one which is processed foods is essentially either the group one and two together, so adding some of these culinary ingredients to the unprocessed food. And other foods such as cheese, for example, are part of the processed food, but not necessarily the ultra-processed one. Right. So essentially, we are eating too much of the worst type of food. We're, yeah, that's the, the one that's almost like half of our diet, essentially, is the, the one that are like lowest in uh, the good nutrients and vitamins and uh, highest in energy and sugar. Well, we've got some work to do. Uh, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That's Didier Garigouet, the senior researcher at Statistics Canada, talking about this new report that says almost half of our calories come from ultra-processed foods. And in case you were wondering, yeah, that's a bad thing. He got me with the bread. As soon as he said bread, I said, oh, yeah, I can see that happening right there. Uh, so, yeah, sounds like we need to do better on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what's happening down in the United States. I mean, did we actually see a significant shift in the U.S. presidential transition yesterday? Is Donald Trump acknowledging that he lost the election? Because it kind of sounded like it. Well, for more on all of this, we're joined now by Steve Dorsey, Washington-based CBS reporter. Steve, thanks for being with us. Hey, it's great to talk to you. So was that something significant yesterday? Is Donald Trump actually acknowledging that he lost? I wouldn't say he's acknowledging his loss because he says that his legal challenges will continue strongly, in all caps, in his uh, words on Twitter. Uh, and he believes that they will um, be successful. Uh, but at the same time, he's recognizing uh, a federal agency called the GSA uh, has recognized uh, that Joe Biden is the apparent winner 
uh, and that the actual winner will be determined uh, when electors meet later in December, and now they get funding and office space in D.C. Okay, so what does that mean overall, then? Does it mean that the actual planning can now get underway? Yeah, exactly. Uh, So basically, um, we expect soon the president-elect will get these daily presidential intelligence briefings. Uh, They also have more money now, more than $6 million, to uh, work on their transition. That means um, paying salaries to transition staffers, uh, using it for resources. They also have uh, thousands of square footage uh, of office space available in Washington, D.C. to house those staff all the way through January 20th when the inauguration takes place. Okay, so what about all the legal fights, though, that have been going on? Do they continue? Uh, They continue. They're not successful. Um, and, And we haven't seen any evidence of the president's claims of widespread voter fraud, but uh, the president insists it's there and that uh, he wants every case heard. Okay, so how has the Biden team been reacting to all of this, Steve? Because it's unprecedented, right? So what are the, what's going on behind the scenes? Well, listen, we really haven't heard uh, Joe Biden um, too much about this. He's, he said that the president is embarrassing himself by dragging on uh, this this uh, legal challenge to the election and, and refusing to engage on his on his transition. Um, but aside from that, he's brushed it off and he's made a number of his own advancements uh, in, in the transition without the help of the federal government. So yesterday we heard him announce a number of nominees, including for Secretary of State, U.N. Ambassador, Climate Envoy. And now we're expecting to hear directly from Joe Biden and uh, see him appear with some of these nominees. Right. And even chose a potential Treasury secretary. But again, these are all nominees, right? They have to go through a process. Well, most of them are nominees. Some are not, including John Kerry's climate envoy. He is uh, an appointment. He'll even receive a seat on the National Security Council, but that's not Senate confirmed. The others, like Secretary of State, UN Ambassador, uh, Director of National Intelligence, those have to be confirmed by um, the Senate, which right now is Republican-controlled. It could could uh, have a chance of, of flipping to a Democratic majority right. uh, when two runoffs happen in uh, Georgia races in, in January. But uh, so far, it is controlled by Republicans. Okay. And speaking of Republicans then, so are they weighing in on this? Like, has there been encouragement from them? Uh, are they acknowledging that the president lost this election? Uh, yeah, a number of them uh, perhaps aren't necessarily acknowledging he's lost. But uh, they are encouraging engagement on a transition. Uh, and they point to 9-11, uh, the 9-11 Commission's report that, that cited a, a slow transition hampered by the 2000 election dispute that ended up at the Supreme Court um, for um, uh, lapses in intelligence and, and security monitoring of those involved in the 9-11 attacks. Right. OK, so this just sounds like an incredibly slow process, Steve. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to pick up speed uh, over the uh, Thanksgiving break uh, this week and into December when we expect to hear more of these selections for key jobs in uh, the Biden administration. And then, of course, the key date really is middle of uh, middle of uh, December. I think it's December the 14th when these electors meet. And then we get uh, we get uh, a result from them. And then in the new Congress in the beginning of January, then the new Congress certifies these results. Um, so it's going to be a little bit of a dragged on process, but that hasn't stopped the, the 
Biden-Harris team from doing their own work. Right. Okay. But still no actual acknowledgement from President Trump that he will uh, see that somebody else is winning this and that he'll be leaving the White House. Yeah. I mean, listen, we may not ever get that. Um, I mean, it's possible the president uh, believes uh, he's the rightful winner. Uh, and that's just out of his control that uh, Joe Biden um, won. I mean, he believes that these votes, especially mail-in votes, were cast illegally. And uh, there's been some reporting that the president uh, is upset that Democrats cast him as an illegitimate president by uh, not winning the popular vote, only winning the electoral vote in 2016. And he wants to, to return the favor, if you will, uh, to Joe Biden and the Democrats. Never a dull moment. All right, Steve, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's Steve Dorsey, Washington-based CBS reporter, talking about what is going on uh, with the American election. It, it There hasn't actually been a resolution. It's hard to believe, right, that it's almost become normal what's going on down there right now, that, oh, they're all waiting. Yes, okay, there is this man in the White House who refuses to acknowledge that he lost, and they wait for words that are likely, as Steve pointed out, not going to happen at all. In the meantime, life goes on, and they plan for a new administration coming up in January, and it's almost like everybody's pretending, just don't pay any attention to that man over there behind the curtain and just let everything else go on. That's the state of the United States these days. This is Mornings with Simi. Every time you've heard the news, the Bay or Hudson's Bay in the news lately, it is not generally very good because the department store is struggling, as are so many other businesses in this pandemic. But of course, this company is different. They have been around for 350 years in this country before we were a country. In fact, 2020 marks that anniversary, 350 years since the Hudson Bay Company was founded. Well, there's a new book out about that that traces the history of this historically historic significant company. And Stephen Brown joins us now, author of the book called The Company. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Good morning. What got you involved in this project? Oh, I've been thinking about this for quite a while. I mean, you know, as you just, you know, alluded to, the company is one of the most important, iconic institutions in all of our history or prehistory. I mean, it's its reach is incredible from Hudson's Bay to the subarctic from Montreal to the Pacific Ocean you know um it, it controlled such a large quantity of the the economic development of all of western and northern north america it's one of the most important entities around for so long and yet um you know at one time it was the only general store for half of an entire continent right. and now all of a sudden it's been declared an unnecessary business Oh, I guess when you were digging into the history, it kind of becomes a history of Canada, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so many, you know, so many different phases and changes over time, and so many fascinating and interesting people who lived their lives within the context of that, you know, evolving political and economic scenarios that played out over time. You know, everything from you know small scale trading along the the rim of Hudson's Bay to iconic. You know, the stories of the iconic explorers who went their way on the river systems right. throughout North America to the, you know, the end of the fur trade in the end of the 19th century. We know the general story, Stephen, right? But tell us, what don't we know about the history of the Hudson Bay Company? I think, you know, it's been 30 years since, you know, a new book has tackled this massive subject. Um, so a lot of attitudes in society have changed since that time and and um to me it seems that like a big chunk of the story was always missing and that 
you know, part of it was missing was the, the extent to which the Hudson's Bay Company was fully integrated with indigenous societies from its very earliest date that it set up shop in 1670. You know, the people coming across the ocean, you know, from England at that time, for example, those are wooden sailing ships, and they didn't have maps of where they were going. They're, you know, the wind is in the sail, and sometimes it's not. There's scurvy raging on the ship. There's massive storms. There's chunks of uh, ice that they have to navigate in Hudson's Bay, and they arrive on the shore. They set up a little you know, little outpost to do some commerce with the people. And they don't know anything. There's no maps. There's no communication. Um, these people would sign on you know, contracts to work for a minimum of seven years because only one ship a year would come and the space was at a premium. Many of them stayed for decades. So the first thing they did was learn the languages and the customs of the people who lived there. And, and of course, they married into those societies and had their children in those societies. And, um, you know, that is all part of the the company's history. That's so interesting that you put it that way because you're right, it is time, 30 years after the last was written, so much of what we now understand about our history is very different in the last 30 years, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, we definitely need a reappraisal of it and, you know, a recognition of the of the extent to which all of these early peoples were much more integrated with each other than they became in the mid to late 19th century when, um, you know, there was a fellow named George Simpson, who's quite an odious villain, actually, although a very interesting um, one. He's a self-serving. He was definitely a racist. He was definitely a abuser of women and abuser of all his employees. And he, he shifted the company's sort of much more open and fluid and dynamic corporate culture to being one, just of being very nasty, closed and racist. The, the idea of the company being this oppressive British monopoly that controlled everyone and kind of had their thumb on people's lives. I mean, that all comes from his, his era. Right. You're you saying know, it was very different. On its legacy. It was very yeah, different yeah. before. It was very different for 150 years. Most of the people who worked there were probably indigenous or mixed heritage, the children of those first liaisons between the different cultures. And he, you know, Simpson let it be known that that all the indigenous wives of his senior officers were the impediment to their promotion within the ranks of the business. So he encouraged them to, to get rid of their their wives, and he started not promoting mixed heritage children to any positions of authority within the company, something which had never been done, because who's, who was better to operate the company than people who were culturally right. fluid with their feet in both worlds? I mean, he was able to do that because it was a, mon- a monopoly, and he was a logistical genius, and he kind of had dictatorial powers, but he was a nasty character. And, and you know, so many of the negative aspects of, of that history come directly from him. But I don't want that to erase the first 150 years, which was something completely different. And right. Well, in our history, we, we still ignore some of the stories from that earlier time period, too. Which is why it's so worth checking this out. So, Stephen, thank you for joining us. It was my pleasure.